Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Chris Rowley. If you haven't had the chance to meet me, I get to serve as the director of the Bridges Friends of Internationals team. And I also get to serve here at Calvary as one of the elders. And I'm excited to, to open up God's word with you this morning. You ready for it? Let's pray. Father, uh, here we are. Holy Spirit, here we are. Here I am. And here we are. And we are asking for you to do something here in our hearts this morning. God, we are fully dependent on you to move in our midst. And God, I pray that you would take ordinary words today, verbs and nouns, and that you would transform them in our hearts into something supernatural that can bring about the heart change that you desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like Brandon said, we have been on a six-month journey through the entire Old Testament, and we're wrapping it up today. We're going to put a bow on it today and tie a lot of those pieces together. I, I don't know if any of you like watching ice hockey. I'm a huge fan of hockey, especially the playoffs, especially the Stanley Cup finals. Now, if you don't know what hockey is, if you're not like into the National Hockey League, the, the Stanley Cup Finals, it, it's the, the end of the season. It's when we're down to two teams left, and there's these two teams that have been battling it out through the entire season. They've played 56 regular season games. Then they had to win 16 additional games to get to the championship. And you know what? By the time those two teams make it to the championship, they're both pretty beat up. A lot of the guys have like full beards at that point because they had to grow out their beards to cover the stitches that were all over their face. They've got dislocations and fractures and broken bones, upper body injuries and lower body injuries, foot injuries, every kind of injury you could imagine you would find on a hockey team at the end of the season because they had covered tons of territory. They had played so many games and gotten into so many fights. And you know what? The story that we've been studying through the Old Testament of the Jewish people is a little bit like a hockey season. They've been through all kinds of injuries, ups and downs. Some of those injuries they endured were spiritual injuries. Others were physical injuries. Some were injuries they inflicted on themselves. They had some setbacks. They had some great comebacks. They had some wins and they had some losses. And like any hockey game, there was some fighting. And last week, we turned the corner. Peter helped us to kind of connect some of those dots in the Old Testament. Have you ever done one of those art projects where there's all the little dots and the numbers and you have to follow the dots and connect one to the other? And before you know it, eventually a picture or an image starts to emerge from all of these seemingly disconnected dots. And that's what we've been seeing in the Old Testament, that as we connect those dots, the image that begins to emerge is this image image that is pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
Now, as we press this last week into our our conclusion of this sermon series, I want us to begin to think now, what is our role in this narrative? Where do we fit into this story? We're, We're learning that the entire story is pointing to this picture of Jesus, but where do we fit into the story? And that's what we're going to do today. Our first big thought that I want us to think about today is this. From Luke chapter 9, if you got your Bibles, you can open up to Luke chapter 9. It'll be on the screen for you. First big thought is this. Who do you say that Jesus is? When I say the name Jesus, what comes into your mind? What thought do you have? What image do you have? We see in Luke chapter 9 that Jesus has just finished feeding 5,000 people miraculously. And he gets his disciples alone with him by themselves, and he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? Let's look at it. Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 20. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others said, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. So verse 19, we get some of the popular theories that were floating around in Jesus' day about exactly who he was. Some thought that he was John the Baptist. Others thought maybe he was Elijah, raised from the dead, or another prophet. And the who is Jesus question You know, it's not just a question that occurred in this moment. As you study the book of Luke, we begin to see that the who is Jesus question gets raised again and again and again. I think I've got a slide to show a couple. In chapter 7, they ask, who is this who even forgives sins? Chapter 8, the disciples see Jesus calm the storm and the wind and the waves, and they say, who is this? Even nature listens to him. And even a political leader, a guy named Herod, started to wonder, who is this about whom I hear such things in chapter 9? This was the climate of the world where Jesus was operating in. Everybody's wondering, who is this guy? He's doing all these things. He's teaching. He's healing people. He's feeding people. Who exactly is it that we're dealing with? Jesus was aware of the different opinions of him, but interestingly, Jesus seemed a little bit more interested in what his disciples thought about him rather than what the masses thought of him. Look at verse 20. Jesus turns to Peter after Peter tells him all the opinions of him, and he says directly to him, but who do you say that I am? This is important. This is really incredible. Jesus cares about his disciples. He doesn't just care about what the masses think. He's asking them directly, giving them the opportunity to articulate it themselves. Who do you think that I am? Last week, I was was actually driving home from church with a friend, and we were talking about some controversial topic. It's not really that controversial. I won't tell you what it is now, but... I was explaining to her, like, yeah, there's different opinions about this. There's some people that think this. There's some people that think this. And then she turned to me and she said, but what does Chris Rowley think? 
And you know what? I think that that's exactly what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He knows there's different opinions of him floating around out there, but he wants to know, who do you say that I am? And there's a lot of confusion today about who Jesus is, isn't there? Is he a good teacher? Could he be a prophet? Is Jesus maybe more than a prophet? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus really the long-awaited Messiah? See, we live in 2021. And if you care even a little bit about engaging with the broader culture in which you live, you're going to realize very quickly we're swimming in a massive amount of confusion about who Jesus is. And I'm so thankful that Sunday after Sunday, people come here to Calvary wondering who Jesus is and looking for the answer to that. And if that's you, thank you for coming. We'd be happy to talk with you. I would be happy to talk with you after the service to help guide you in some next steps in your discerning who exactly Jesus is. And for all of us, let's not let the Bible be an impersonal document. Will you let Jesus ask you the question that he asked his disciples? Who do you say that he is? Not who should you say that he is, but in reality, who is Jesus in your life? Exploring, trying to figure out who he is is great. But don't be confused. There is a right and a wrong way to answer that question. And it looks to me like Peter got the right answer. Verse 20, Peter speaks for the group and calls Jesus the Christ. He calls him the Christ of God. The NIV translates it as God's Messiah. And we find out that Matthew records the exact same event. It gives us a little more detail. Let's look at 16. 16 to 17, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Peter identifies Jesus correctly as the Messiah, the Messiah, the Christ. Christ is just the Greek translation of the word Messiah. We're going to define Messiah this morning as the long-awaited eternal king who descended from David and is the rescuer of God's people. Got that? The long-awaited eternal king, descendant from David, rescuer of God's people. This is why we're ending our series on the Old Testament with this passage of Scripture, because it shows us clearly that Jesus is everything we've been longing for in the Old Testament. He's everything the Old Testament has been pointing towards. So the next logical question is, well, what kind of Messiah is he? He's a Messiah, okay, but what kind of Messiah is Jesus? He's a king, okay, but what kind of king? He's a savior, but what kind of savior? And this is the second big thought I want us to get our minds around today. Jesus is a Messiah who gains victory through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 21 and 22. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The time in which Jesus lived, there was all these different ideas about what people wanted the Messiah to be. Everybody had their own idea of who the Messiah would be or what the Messiah would do. And Jesus didn't really fit into any of the categories of what people were hoping the Messiah would be. Jesus was martyred as the Messiah, and very few people expected that to happen. So what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? Look closely at verse 22. We get the clearest picture of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. It says he must suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and be raised from the dead on the third day. At the center of what it means that Jesus is Messiah, it means that he's a suffering king a king who willingly comes and dies for his people. But he's not just the suffering king. Verse 22 tells us he will be and he is a victorious king, a king who will rise from the dead. Jesus, he didn't just come to the earth for a photo op, did he? I was recently somewhere where there was a bunch of people who, uh, it, it was an event and a, a large group of people came and they literally came with their own camera crew to capture what they were doing. It was a photo op. And before I knew it, they were gone. They just came for the photo to make themselves and to make other people feel good. Jesus did not come to this planet for a quick photo op. He didn't come to planet Earth just to make us feel better that he was there. He didn't come to planet Earth just to make himself feel better that he had done something good for us poor people. Jesus, the king of all kings, came to this earth to suffer and die to bring us freedom from sin and eternal life. That is good news. Your king is not interested in photo ops. Your Messiah is a Messiah that loves us enough to suffer on our behalf. And I think we're starting to see now where the story of God connects to our story, right? Because we learned early on in, in the, the book of Genesis that sin had so corrupted and broken the world that the only solution was that God himself would come and fix it. And that's why God sent his son Jesus. And now we're starting to see how this grand narrative involves all of us. We looked at David. We looked at Moses. We've looked at Abraham. We've looked at Adam and Eve. We've looked at Deborah and many other famous people in the Old Testament. They were all part of that grand narrative we've been studying. But Sometimes we wonder, right, where do we fit in? Does this story involve us at all in any way? And to think about that, I want us to think about two things that may seem completely opposite. I want you to think about gravity and the Grand Canyon. I have never been to the Grand Canyon. I would love to go someday. I've heard that it is beautiful. I've heard that it is breathtaking. But you know what? 
Whether or not I go to the Grand Canyon does not really matter in the scheme of my life. Whether or not the Grand Canyon even exists at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. You and I, we can live completely fulfilled lives and never go see the Grand Canyon. Sorry for the tourist industry in uh, that part of the country. But gravity's not like that, is it? Whether or not you realize what gravity is, it still has a profound impact on your life. Whether you're a two-year-old and you haven't even thought of quantum mechanics and physics, or whether you're a 90-year-old and you've never thought to study about gravity in your entire life, gravity has had a profound impact on your life from the moment you were born until the moment you die. And there's not a place in this universe you can go to escape its influence. And all of that is true whether you know it or not. Whether you believe it or not, this paper will still fall if I drop it. Why? Because of gravity. And I want to propose to you that the story of God, the story of the Bible that we have been studying, it's more like gravity than the Grand Canyon. Whether or not you realize it, you're a part of the story. Whether or not you care to know it, the story impacts your life. And no matter how hard we try to escape it, like gravity, there's nowhere you can go that the true story of God revealed in the Bible does not impact your life. And it's here, it's right here at this point in the story, that Jesus offers us the most serious and most important invitation he could ever offer a human being. Verse 23, we begin to see this. Jesus offers an invitation to complete and total surrender. Verse 23, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus invites all of us to come after him. Come after someone just means to follow somebody. It's what a disciple would do with a teacher as they enter into a relationship of discipleship with their teacher. And we learn from the, the form of those, those three Greek verbs in that sentence, denial, taking up the cross, and following. We learn that denial and taking up the cross are two ways to describe what it means to follow. Basically, Jesus is saying, look, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a follower of me, the Messiah, your life should be characterized by denial of self and taking up the cross. Jesus is inviting us to enter into his kingdom. And we enter into that kingdom by surrendering our own little kingdoms to him. God, you're the king. You're in control, not me. And when we surrender our little kingdoms to him and we submit completely to his leadership of our lives, we enter into that kingdom as disciples of Jesus. Have you ever been tricked into doing something you didn't realize was so hard? <laughs> Parenting. 
Whoops, that slipped. I know there's been a few times in my life where I felt tricked into doing something that was much harder than I thought it would be. Have you ever started hiking up a mountain and you're like, I had no idea it was so steep? Have you ever started a home improvement project and wow, it took all your time and your money and it still is not fixed? Well, Jesus is not tricking us here, is he? Jesus gives some crystal clear language, a description of what it means to enter into a relationship with him. No Christian can say they've been tricked because it's right here. Jesus said discipleship would be hard. And he's inviting us into a completely new way of living that comes through dying to self and living through Christ. When Jesus says in verse 23 that he's expecting his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, he is not using metaphorical language. He's talking to a group of people who literally were going to put one foot in front of the other and walk behind him. And he knew that as some of them did that, they would literally need to take up that cross beam of the cross and carry it out themselves past a jeering mob of people to their death. He's teaching disciples what they must be prepared for. A disciple of Jesus is someone who has so surrendered their life to Jesus that it is as if they have already died. One author in the Bible, Paul, describes it vividly like this in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This verse represents the essence of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Disciples are people who recognize we've been crucified with Jesus. It's not us who live, it's Jesus who live in us. And if you're having a hard time getting your brain around that this morning, let me tell you, I've spent almost my entire adult life trying to figure out what that means in Galatians 2, verse 20. It's such a rich and deep and beautiful passage, so spend some time yourself exploring the beauty of this truth that you, Christian, have already died with Christ, and the life you're living right now this morning in Trumbull, Connecticut, is only being lived because Jesus the Christ is within you. Isn't that incredible? Like I said earlier, Jesus, he doesn't hide the difficulty. He doesn't hide the challenges, the pain and the suffering. And he also doesn't hide the fact that he thinks that not following him is foolish. Look at verse 24 and 25. The the longer you begin to walk in faith with Jesus, the more you begin to realize that what looks like a paradox here is actually deeply true. Look at verse 24 and 25. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world 
and yet lose or forfeit their very self. Man, Jesus must have shocked his disciples with this one. Can you imagine the disciples hearing these words? What? Dying is living? Trying to keep my life is losing my life? This is a whole nother way of doing profit and loss analysis. Any accountants in here? This is not the way most businesses operate. But Jesus is presenting a whole new way of living in, in which dying is gain because the gain we have is eternity with Jesus and a life that can never be taken away. Can I ask you what Jesus asks the disciples in verse 25? I'm not asking you something he won't ask you. Really, at the end of the day, what benefit do we have if we gain the whole world and we lose ourselves? Like Mark says it, Mark chapter 8, verse 36, what profit, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose the soul? What benefit do we gain if we have everything we've ever dreamed of, but we lose our soul? If we get that job, if we get that salary, if we get that car, if we get that house, if we get that spouse, if we get that whatever it is we're looking for, if we get it all, but we lose the only thing that matters for eternity, what does it matter? Oh, we don't think about eternal things nearly enough. I have found that in the West, we work very hard to isolate ourselves from the reality that one day, every one of our hearts will stop beating. Every one of our lungs will stop filling with air. And this is why Jesus needed to define for his people what it means that he's the Messiah. Remember. They wanted a Messiah that would give them deliverance and food and comfort and security right then and there. But if Jesus had given them what they wanted, they would have missed what they needed most. And interestingly, even paradoxically, as we unite with Jesus in faith, even though we may carry the cross and live a life of denial, it's worth it. I know there's a couple people that are hearing me say this and you are thinking you must be out of your mind. There's some people who hear what I'm saying and you're thinking you are completely crazy, Chris. If you think that I'm gonna give up my kingdom and my dreams and my agenda in hope of some future that I can't even see right now, if you think I'm gonna do that, you're completely crazy. And you know what, you would be right if it wasn't for verse 22. Verse 22 reminds us of a reality that holds up to all kinds of historical scrutiny. Jesus was raised from the dead. His body was put in a grave for three days and hundreds of people saw him bust out of that grave and walk around and teach people and touch people and feed with people. You'd be right. I'm crazy if verse 22 is not right. But only someone who can look death in the face and kick death in the teeth could say the things that Jesus said and have them be true. And that's exactly what he did. 
So if you want to know at the end of the day why I'm placing my bets with Jesus and nobody else, it's pretty simple. He's alive. He was raised from the dead. He said, I'm more powerful than death. And then you know what? He proved it. He said that life could be gained by dying. And then you know what? He died and he came back to life. And when we are united with Jesus, this incredible king in faith, we are united to someone who looked at death and defeated death. Isn't that good news? Have you ever had your car maybe break down on the side of a major highway? Or have you ever had to pull over your car on the side of the highway maybe to take care of a kid or to change a tire on the car? Have you ever had that happen? Like on 95, imagine a highway that, you know, 55, 65, 75 miles per hour for a speed limit. Have you ever had that happen? It's not fun. And you get out of your car on the side of this major highway, and all of a sudden you realize that those other cars that are on the highway are screaming by you. It feels like they're going 1,000 miles per hour. It is, it is unnerving to be on the side of the highway as you see these cars just flying by you, 65, 75 miles per hour. But you know what? When we're in our own comfortable cars, driving, on the side, driving down the highway, going 65, 75, 85 maybe, some of you? When we're in our own cars driving down the highway, we hardly even notice how fast we're going, right? Anybody ever had the passenger say, hey, I think you're going a little too fast. See, sometimes we need to change our, our vantage point a little bit to realize the true nature of things. And when you're, you pull your car over on the side of the highway and you're seeing other people fly by at 75 miles per hour, four feet away from you, you're thinking, they're going way too fast. You've got a whole new perspective on the situation. And I'm praying this morning that for some of us coming in here to this room at Calvary Church on a Sunday morning to think about eternal things in a sober way for a few moments would have that same effect. It would give us a new vantage point from which we see things. And we're not talking about cars flying down a highway anymore, are we? What is it? What's the vantage point that I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will awaken in us? It's not cars that are flying by. It's our lives. It goes quick. I know compared to some of you, I'm still pretty young. But the sober truth is this. Life goes quick, doesn't it? Jesus is the king. He lovingly rose from the dead for you, and he offers us an invitation that matters infinitely more than anything else on this planet. He's offering us the chance to give our lives in surrender to him and to receive back from him what we could never earn on our own. He's offering us an invitation into something we can't invite ourselves into, He's inviting you into something wonderful. The grand story of the Bible that we've been learning, it's not a separate parallel story that's running parallel with your story. I hope that you're starting to see that it is our story too. 
And with great love and great kindness, God is inviting us, Calvary, into that story in order to assume our role as disciples of the King. And just like gravity affects everything on this planet, God's true story affects every one of our lives. It's taking place all around you. And God this morning is inviting us into it. And like I said before, I'm not going to ask us to do anything that Jesus himself would not ask us to do as a church. So let's see what Jesus said. I'm going to finish with those two very important questions that was raised by Jesus. Number one, who do you say that he is? Peter confidently gave his answer, didn't he? He knew. How about you? Do you know that answer to that question? Who is Jesus? And most importantly, will you accept his invitation to follow him in discipleship? I think for some people in this room, you're ready to make a choice for the very first time in your life to follow Jesus as his disciple. I want to encourage you to talk with someone after the service. I would be happy to talk with you. Any of the elders would. Whoever it was that brought you here to church would be happy to talk with you to help you understand how you take those first steps of following Jesus, the Messiah, as he leads you to eternal life and peace with God. And for some of us, I think we've been casual Christians for a long time. Maybe contented to follow Jesus from a distance. Maybe contented to be a disciple of Jesus and maybe a disciple of someone or something else. I want to encourage us, church, that God might be calling us to a deeper level of discipleship with him. And if God is giving you some clarity this morning, if God is working in your heart this morning and for some reason he's giving you clarity about eternal things and things that matter, if God's doing that in your heart, thank God. He loves you enough that he would speak to you in that way and call you to more. And I want to encourage you, if you feel like you've just been a casual disciple of Jesus, maybe not even a real disciple of Jesus, would you tell someone about that? Would you tell your small group? Would you tell your friend that brought you to church? Would you tell one of the elders or the pastors? Tell someone, I don't know where God is leading me. I don't exactly know what this discipleship is going to lead to, but some of you, you're hearing his voice this morning, and he's calling you to something more. And I thank God with you that he's doing that and working in you in that way. And I want to encourage you, tell someone else who can help you walk that path with Jesus. And as I finish, I just want you to use your imagination. Could you imagine if that verse that I read earlier from Galatians, could you imagine, Calvary, if it was so true of us as a church that we could change the pronouns from 
me and I to us. Let me read it, the Chris version, using new pronouns to help us imagine what it might be like as we as a church commit to following our Messiah, King Jesus. Galatians 2, verse 20. We have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. The life we live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us, Calvary, who loved us and gave his life for us. May it be so. God, we thank you for meeting here with us. God, this is a very hard passage in the Bible. It's one that is very easy for me to ignore sometimes. And I thank you that you are not content to leave us content with anything but you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work in our church. Lord, as we move closer to you this summer, God, I pray that you would continue the work that you're doing here among us this morning. In the name of Jesus, the Messiah, amen.